Hey folks, today on the podcast, we've got Ted Benson. Ted Benson is a biotechnology and management consultant with 20 years of experience turning scientific ideas into biopharma growth and revenue. He has successfully led a worldwide strategy team for cultural transformation at a Fortune 500 company. He's closed over $3 million in contracts for driving business development and built and managed innovation across international companies, startups, uh, and beyond. He's co-authored over a dozen peer-reviewed scientific papers and co-invented four patents. Ted, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Will? Good. How was that bio? How's that bio? That bio is an awesome bio. And since it touched on biology, you could say it was a nice bio bio. That's <laughs> great, isn't it? Yeah, oh, no, it was a nice, nice recap. No, no worries, man. You did a nice job. Perfect. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it today. So, sure. uh, Ted, are there lessons that the layperson wouldn't normally think about slash understand around managing a large strategy team or just a team in general at a Fortune 500 company? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I'm going to pull out right off the top is um, the dichotomy between uh, the structure and the function of that team to wit. If you don't create a team that has solid championing at the highest possible levels, it won't succeed because you won't be able to really invest in it. People won't take the time. It won't get the, uh, the support that it needs in the organization to succeed. At the same time, if you don't create that team with serious chops in the operational side, in other words, frontline workers, first-line leaders, uh, people who are experienced at multiple levels within the organization. So as I said, like in addition to the two groups I mentioned already, directors, uh, senior directors, uh, VPs, you have to have input from a broad slice of the organization. And that has to be a legitimate dive. And it has to be, in fact, in favor of the frontline workers and first-line leaders, because those are the people who actually, um, to use a mining metaphor, they're the ones at the coal face, right? They're the ones who are actually right up against the business. Uh, and so they're the ones who actually see the pain points and the opportunities that senior leaders may or may not be aware of, uh, which is not to fault them. They just have a different space, a different function. So you simultaneously then have to, as I said at first, have to have that upper level championing. You've got to have that buy-in and that support, that sponsorship from someone high enough in the organization or a group high enough in the organization that people can't ignore it. And so that the organization itself will carve out the time because everybody has operational issues they're dealing with. Some of those are mundane. Some of those are challenging, but they're all busy is the take home. So if you don't right. have that high level operational buy-in, excuse me, high level management buy-in, then you're not going to have people actually participating. They're not going to make the time. They're not going to put the effort in. But gotcha. if you don't simultaneously have the, the sort of, for lack of a better term, lower level, uh, frontline workers, first-line leaders engaged in the process, and you don't have to engage all of them, but you definitely need to engage a representative sample of them, uh, then it will also fail because it will cease, it will not be, it will not be adequately informed by the realities of day-to-day -day life and existence, right? So high level, for the, for the sort of operational leadership and sponsorship, and then low level for the actual, you know, where, where the rubber hits the road kind of, kind of perspective that will actually inform it and make it therefore accurate and, and, and be able to carry forward appropriately. Interesting. So is, is it, so how do you get buy-in from all those interest groups? Is it just talking to them and making sure their, you know, concerns are heard is, you know, what does that look like? Well, I, that's a good starting point. Uh, you also have to understand what the issues are in terms of the particular group. So if you are in an organization that is, let's say, you know, you have problems, you know, you have pain points, things are not working well. You can probably say, okay, we need to talk about this. We need to get this on the table and to have a discussion about this with, with various people. Uh, in a sense that it's easier because people feel the pain. They know something's wrong, right? It's like, you know, you, you sprain your ankle, you go to the doctor because it hurts like hell, it's swollen, and you want to make sure it's not broken, right? Whereas right. if your ankle's just sort of, eh, it's just sort of annoying, it's, it's on and off, and you kind of ignore it, and you kind of ignore it, and then it turns out you've got some terrible vascular issue down there, right? But right. now it's really gotten a long ways because you didn't go sooner. Similarly, organizations that are doing okay, uh, particularly if they're profitable, and there's not an incentive to dig into some of this stuff, they can just ignore a problem. They can just wish it away. 
And, and a lovely saying, and I'm sorry, I can't give you a precise reference for it, but a lovely saying I've heard is you are what you tolerate, right? So if your organization has issues and you're, you're, you're like, okay, fine, people are yelling at each other, but you know, we're still making our money. Well, you are what you tolerate. Now you're a place where people yell at each other and it's okay. Right. So, so, so does that get to your answer? I, I think it definitely does. So, you know, picking the right problems to work on and try to attack that have sufficient pain points across the organization. Right. Now, if you're um, lucky, if you're lucky, Will, you've got a leader who's smart enough, who knows that what we're doing now is good, but we could be a whole hell of a lot better. Right? Gotcha. Here's the negative example, Kodak. Kodak right. stood on top of the world, right? I mean, you look at any picture of, I don't know, Disney from Disney World or something from, you know, the 1970s or whatever. There's Kodak yeah. stuff everywhere, right? Kodak was ubiquitous. They were absolutely dominant player in the photography space for decades. And they invented digital photography. Many people don't realize this. They invented right. digital photography in like the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, they created this really clunky, simple, basic, primitive system. They invented it, but they were like, oh, yeah, this is ridiculous. No one's ever going to want to use this kind of system. It's way too difficult. And they ignored it. And as the technology improved, they continued to ignore it. And as the technology improved, they continued to ignore it. And part of that was because they were making damn good money. Right. Kodak's profit stream was massive. Okay. Absolutely huge. And it was all coming from their chemical photographic finishing. Right. right? All that comes. Well, came a time when that business completely evaporated because of digital photography. Now most people don't even own a camera. It's all built in your phone. Why should you buy a camera? Right. Right. Kodak totally missed the vote on that because they were too, too set in their ways and too fine with that. Hey, we're making good money. Sure. There's this other interesting technology, but that's not really our concern. That's a different business model. It's just not us. Uh, so they missed the boat on that and they paid the price. Uh, they're, they're essentially gone. I mean, their chemical products are still around and they still do some photo work, but it's a shadow of what it was as a company, right? Right. You contrast that with somebody, um, and I, I, I hate to use an overused metaphor, um, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to come up with something that's non-obvious, but um, if you think of something like, oh, okay, we'll go with Amazon, okay? It's a little overused, but still, what were they originally? They, do you remember what they originally were? Uh, just books, just yeah. booksellers, online books. And at the time people were like, why the hell would you want to buy books online? Right. right? Exactly. Because people had this whole idea of a bookstore where you would go to a bookstore and you would be in the store right. and there would be all these wonderful books. And you know, it's a great experience, but uh, Amazon didn't just develop the bookstore model. The bookstore model took off. And then Amazon didn't say, Hey, we're going to be number one in books. We're good. Right. Right. They said, how the hell else can we leverage this? What else can we sell? Well, we can sell anything exactly. that doesn't, you know, it doesn't go bad, any non-perishable we can sell. And by God, now they're in perishables as well. And they're, they're at, now they're selling cars and all kinds of stuff. They, they didn't just sit on that really nice lucrative profit margin. And many people don't know this. Are you aware? You might know this, Will. Do you know what their major profit revenue driver is now? AWS. You got it, baby. You got yeah. it. Amazon Web Services, right? Most people aren't even aware Amazon's in that space and yet they are making huge amounts of money off of providing web services for other companies that have nothing to do with Amazon's original business model. These other companies may not even be selling products. I, I know one company that does genetic analysis, and they use Amazon Web Service Server to, to, um, to store the data from their uh, sequencing work which then customers then access on, you know, some sort of web portal that just is a front end for this AWS partition. Right. And that's nothing to do with Amazon's consumer service. It's, right. it's not even remotely close to their original market. So I'm using that again, Amazon's kind of a, a, a tried and true example these days of a company that established a good business, saw that it was good and said, okay, what else can we do now? And, right. you know, if the book model went away tomorrow, it probably would, I don't even know if it would be 5% of Amazon's gross now. Right. I mean, it's just, they, they just leapfrogged and kept going and going and going and going. So that is an example of a company that was able to see that, hey, we're, we're, we're good, but we can be even better. And so we do work with companies like that in, in my firm when we do consulting work. Uh, we work with companies that have clear pain points. We also work with companies that are really they're cutting edge companies and they want to stay on that cutting edge. They don't want to just sit tight. They want to really push forward. Uh, we're working with a company now to help them design a whole new recognition program uh, because they haven't had one in the past to speak of. And they want to encourage new ways of behaving 
through their recognition program. So it's not just, hey, Will, good job closing that account. Here's a $25 Starbucks gift card. Right. It's, Will, man, you, you, you took this whole online class on uh, marketing and you just now got this certificate that's really impressive in, in social media marketing. And uh, we didn't ask you to do that, but boy, we can see how that could really help us. And we're recognizing you for that. Well done, right? Something where you, you might even get a, a compensation for having taken that class, right? So, so there's all these different pieces there that could be completely new, depending on what they want to build. Again, they're going to build it. We're facilitating it. But there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on in these spaces if you're willing to push, if you're willing to say, we can do better. Whether you're in pain now or whether you're doing fine, the question is, do you think he can do better? And most places can. That's really interesting. It, it almost seems like you're talking about, you know, giving kudos and recognition to employees. Mm. It seems like they're, and you talked about Eastman Kodak, mm. which is an interesting uh, example, mm. uh, which seems to be a classic case of this. There seems to be a tension in organizations between the people who are trying to do the primary mission. So let's say for, you know, Eastman Kodak, it's to sell photographs and, and make sure the, the business works properly. And then the people that, um, and then those people are all that exists in the beginning and startup phase. And then slowly over time, you have people who are uh, essentially social climbers and work to, uh, you know, please the bureaucracy of the organization and they become the primary stakeholders. Um, there's like a, there's a law in social science that describes this and eventually they take over everything. And then instead of actually trying to accomplish the primary mission, they're just trying to pre- please the organization itself. Right. And so, and then there's this, you know, selective, if selective player pressure comes along, like in the case of Eastman Kodak, it all blows up and you just can't keep it going anymore. And yeah, it seems I mean, keeping the creators in charge in some sense, you know, maybe that's founder driven. I don't know. Well, I mean, it also depends on um, your functional expectations and needs, right? Uh, there's good evidence to suggest, and there's been various papers on this uh, presented over the years in various fora and, and, um, and publications that, um, you know, the people who start a group up may not be the people to really take it all the way to market, right? You may have a group of people who are great at getting things off the ground. They're very experimental. They're trying all kinds of different things. But then once you create a, a system or a system of systems that you need a different skill set to continue that as a freestanding business. I'll give you an example. There's, I got to be careful what names I use, but uh, a local tech-ish company, I'm, I'm being squishy here, so you can't figure yeah. out who they are. Uh, a local tech-ish company a little while ago, they had a really interesting uh, online product uh, and they were offering it to people to help uh, drive uh, sales acquisition. And so they, they, they thought they had a pretty good product. It was in beta and they tried to sell it and they hired in a bunch of people to sell it about a half a dozen people, including some very experienced salespeople. And they tried to sell it and they tried to sell it and it didn't work. They couldn't yeah. get sales. And they thought, God, we've hired the wrong guys. They don't know what to do, nice. whatever. It turned out that nobody wanted to buy their beta software because it was clearly beta. And they admitted that it was beta and it had a whole bunch of holes in it. Yeah. And nobody wanted it. Right. Yeah. So they had to let all those people go. There was nothing wrong with those people. They were doing yeah. the best they could with the situation they had, but they'd hired the right people at the wrong time. Right. right. Later on, their product got better developed and they were able to sell the entire company to a group that really saw the value in what they were doing, okay? So that's the key. They got it to the point where somebody else said, okay, now we see the value of it. We'll buy your whole company. We'll take you in-house and we'll use you for all of our, our field staff uh, to help with their business. And um, that's great. Now it's, now it's no longer an innovation piece. Now it's no longer a disruptive piece. Now it's, okay, how do we, how do we tailor fit this into this new organization and help them utilize it. There's some creativity involved there, but then it, after that, it's mostly just implementation, right? Right. So it depends on what you're trying to do, right? I've also been, I've been in a couple of platform um, biotech startups and uh, it was great fun because we got to build this and uh, all these interesting applications for these platforms that could go in multiple different areas. And I remember one CEO at one of these companies saying, you know, our biggest danger is death by indigestion. Right, because we could take on so many different ideas in so many different directions right. that we couldn't execute effectively on any of them. So even in those innovative environments, you have to have a little bit of a balance of innovation and execution. You can come up with a million ideas, and you should come up with a million ideas, but then you have to boil them down and say, okay, which ones of these are really where we're going to execute? Right? Um, uh, Warren Buffett puts this another way. He's for persons, for individuals. He says, come up with a list of the twenty-five things you want to do in your life, prioritize them, do the top five. Yeah. 
because you can't do everything. There isn't enough time. No, you and you're not. You're going to do a half-assed job on, on on the stuff that you don't really focus on. Right. right. It's true. Well, and, and like you mentioned with Amazon, it seems like the model for conquering the world is, you know, you build up a monopoly in this very niche you know spot which was you know this is amazon was a bookstore that you could buy any book that existed that had ever been in print which was right. you know that's infinitely better than not it, not infinitely better it's much better than going out to books a million and there's like god i've got the john grisham and that's it and that's all i can read um not that this is a bad author but you know if you're looking for something you know more esoteric john grisham john grisham please do not come for will okay. yeah don't come for me i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> buy a john grisham book um so, and, and then you, you expand from, you know, you've get, then you've got the bookstore, then you start selling movies and then it's, you, then you conquer some very large percentage of the movie mark selling, you know, unique DVDs and this video games. And then suddenly, like you said, you're selling AWS. So, so, so there's one other piece in there that we're not discussing. And again, we, we go on with the other questions, but one thing I wanted to, to raise up to here is that timing is incredibly important. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name. He's a fellow on the West coast, been involved with helping to finance the startups of several hundred companies. And he tried to look at the variables that determine the successful versus the unsuccessful startups. And the key variable was timing. All the variables matter to an extent, but the right. key variable was timing. And it, it, the best example I can think of is they, they funded, funded a company in the nineties to do streaming video. Yeah, just too early. Too early because the, the infrastructure wasn't in place for that kind of data transfer. Right. So the best you could do, and I'm not making this up, Will, was a post, postage stamp sized moving right. image on your computer screen exactly. for which you had to install like all these different right, you know, right, right. specific application APIs and all this stuff just to get this little tiny app, this little tiny window this in tiny your computer where you could like barely see like the opening Anything. shot of Star Wars. I think that's right, a spaceship. Right. <laughs> exactly. Completely ridiculous. So timing is really important. It, it's similar in its, and that's a, sort of a, a social and technical and infrastructure piece, right? Right. You know, and, and the parallel to that, interestingly, I'm, I'm drawing a, a line here. Uh, the parallel to that is the most interesting and important variable um, in workplaces in terms of helping your people succeed. So the technical uh, or um, business side, uh, marketplace side thing, timing is critical. But inside of an organization, inside a company, there's a lot of variables that can, can cause a company to sink or swim. I used to like to say when I was in, in these startups that, you know, there's a million ways for a startup to fail. That's right. Um, but one of the most important variables to success, and Google actually looked into this. This is well described, but Google actually got the data on this. They, they looked at all their teams. That, you know, it's Google, right? They have massive right. amounts of teams. They have massive amounts of data on those teams' performance. And they said, what are our most successful teams really like? What's the key variable in those most successful teams? Is it talent? Is it time on project? Is it budget? Is it number of, of people? And they looked at all these different variables and they, yeah, they all had some, some things, but the, the highest correlation was psychological safety. So even if you had a team that was, you know, so-so, but people felt like they could really discuss things, really bring things to the table, they really could contribute. Then now you really had a group that was going to gel because people felt uh, su supported, inspired, right. valued. And so they were able to actually execute exceptionally well. doesn't mean that psychological safety alone will create a successful team. There are obviously other variables in play, but that was the single most important variable. That's super interesting. And, and this almost brings up a meta level concept. I think you've been talking about without directly talking about. So you, you mentioned timing, you mentioned psychological safety as being very important. And in, in the example you gave about uh, streaming video, it seems like, uh, the real pro I mean, it's so difficult to diagnose failures and timing problems are, are, you know, they are, they're abundant, but it seems like um, having the psychological safety to think critically about the problem you're trying to solve is incredibly important because if you sat down in 19, you know, in 95 and you're like, okay, we're going to create Netflix streaming. And then you thought, well, you know, what's the ma maximum bit rate the average American has right now with, you know, this dial up connection. 9600 like, wow. baud or something right yeah it's like okay what's well, a postage stamp are they going to want to watch that instead of a vhs it's like well you know probably not blockbuster is here to stay we probably need to wait uh, but you know if if the person that's leading the charge you know is not thinking critically and doesn't have allow his team psychological safety to think about these things um and, and actually like the engineer to raise his hand and be like guys you know this is really cool but uh 
I think we probably need to wait a little while. Yeah, uh, those are those are great points, Will. And in fact, I'm going to build on that and say Netflix is another good example, right? Where they their original model was Netflix only in the sense that you use the net to order your movie. Ah, uh, right, right. It all came on DVDs. Oh, you're so young, Will. You don't remember the DVDs in the mail? <laughs> I, I, I still remember the DVDs. Okay, I remember okay, waiting, good. waiting for Star Trek DVDs coming in the mail. I remember right, that. right. Exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. So, so um, um, I could make a joke there about Will Wheaton and Will Jarvis, but we yeah. won't that. But, you know, but, but it's, seriously, you used to order them. It was weird to order a, a movie over the net, right? But you would order it and you'd get your three DVDs in the mail and then you know, you'd have a few days and you'd send them back. That was their business model. It was a good business model for the time. It helped destroy Blockbuster because you could get literally any movie. I would get these obscure, like, 1920s German expressionist silent films, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something like that. And, you know, I I thought it was the greatest thing. Oh, my God, I could get these really odd movies. At the same time, absolutely, you could get the, the huge big sellers. You could get Tron. You could get whatever else, right? It was all there. That was their major in, sort of like Amazon. You can get anything in that space. Right. And then they they clearly, once the infrastructure built up, they made the shift to, to online streaming. But that was an intentional business case development for them based on the infrastructure availability. Super cool. Yeah. That's and, really good and, and a bigger piece here too, Will, in any size organization, when you're trying to solve a problem or come up with new approaches, when you're doing that brainstorming, I, I had a great good fortune of working with a team uh, who describe these things as creating a pocket universe, right? In this meeting room or in this work group or whatever it is, you keep recreate this pocket universe. And in that pocket universe, you give everybody psychological safety. You let everybody come to the table and bring their ideas and you let them be expansive as humanly possible. And it's all yes. And there's no ors, there's no nors, there's no, no way. There's no, we've tried that before. None of that's allowed. And you have that discussion. It could be for one meeting. It could be for a week. It could be every week. And then you have a separate space where you get reductive. So you start with that expansive space and then you get reductive, right? So everything's on the table, all kinds of ideas kicking around. And then you get reductive and you say, okay, we want to stream. It's 1996 and we want to stream videos to everybody. Um, anybody here have any idea what the technical requirements for that would be? <laughs> exactly. And then, and then you have that conversation because that's basing it, grounding it in reality. But you right. don't want to throw a ball and chain around all that wonderful idea generation because you don't know where exactly. that's going to go and you don't want to limit that. And then you come over to the, 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 the reductive conversation and bring it down to, okay, we can only do this this much. We can only do it in this context. Uh, we can try it. We're going to need this much money. We expect to have only so many subscribers because you, they're the only people, the only people in America would be in these specific cities that would have the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Very cool. That, that, that's really well put. So I, this is a great transition to, so, uh, you know, corporate culture is something a lot of people talk about um, all over the place. And in fact, I had this really uh, interesting interaction probably a couple of weeks ago with a very well-known venture capitalist on Twitter. And he said, you know, company culture is the number one thing. And I said, you know, you know, so, and so that, that's really interesting, but I do have a question, you know, everyone talks about culture and, but how do you actually build a culture that is successful. That is a good culture because, you know, we've all seen, you know, places that are messed up. There's all these problems. Um, but you know, what is building a successful culture really look like in, in kind of, uh, when the rubber meets the road on the ground in these organizations? Sure. So it's a little bit like the weather, right? Everybody complains about culture, but no one does anything about right, exactly. it. Right? Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to take a two path answer. First, first path is I don't think culture is as complicated as people think it is. I think culture is simply accumulated climate and climate is accumulated behavior. So if I treat you will with respect and I ask your opinion on things and I I, I laugh even at some of your jokes, hard as that may be. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Pretty tough. (laughs) Yeah, it's tough, but you know, you got to make some sacrifices. Dave Chappelle. Uh, (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, Whole nother conversation there. Uh, (laughs) But, but yeah, exactly. If I make you feel like, I care about your opinion, like you're a valued member of the team, um, and that I'm going to ask you things. I'm going to understand what your needs are. And if there's a task we have to come together to do, I'm going to come to you and say, hey, do you have time for this? Can we work on this together? When would you have time for this? Or if it's a task I'm handing you, I can say, "Will by when would you? For example, I said, hey, when, when can we talk, right? And you say, right. oh, well, I'll get back to you. Great, that's fine. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a degree of self-determination and autonomy at the same time I'm giving you the support and respect that you need to perform those tasks, right? 
Right. And obviously that's going to vary depending on individual and you kind of have to suss it out. Some people you ask them to do something that's done. Uh, other people it takes a little more, more, uh, more effort to sort of shepherd things along. But by giving you that space, that's creating a culture between the two of us. Okay. Very simple. Makes right? sense. Like I tell my kids, society doesn't exist until the second person moves into the valley. Right? If you're living in the valley all by yourself, there is no society. It's right. just you. You're Grizzly Adams. But when Grizzly Jake moves in at the other end of the valley, now you have a society. Where does, his, where does his property come? Where does your property come? Where right, do you, right. oh, you don't hunt the same areas. You don't have property. What? Whatever. Whatever that looks like. Right, right. right? So take the example with uh, interaction with you. If instead of being um, accommodating and thoughtful and asking, I tell you things and I direct Got you it. to do things and I insist that you do this, this particular way. And when you don't do it exactly that way, I say, what the hell, Will? I asked you to do it this <laughs> right. way. What's the problem? Right? That's a totally different culture. Okay? And that, draw, that, grow, excuse me, that grows out of those behaviors that we've had repeated over time, which becomes a climate, repeated over more time and in more ways, that becomes a culture. This is Ted and Will's culture is um, we're, we're friendly, we're uh, collegial, uh, we ask each other questions, we bounce ideas around. Or Ted and Will's culture is Ted just tells Will what the hell to do and Will's supposed to do right, it right. if he gets in trouble. Right? Those, are, those are often unconscious choices arising from our personality traits you know, if you use, for example, the DISC method, or uh, I'm trying to think some of the others, the Myers-Briggs or something like that, we all have sort of areas where we're more naturally fit, and our right. behaviors stem from that. If you're directive, or if you're um, an enthusiastic person, or if you're very um, introverted, those affect how you interact with other people. But those over time become a behavior pattern, that behavior pattern becomes your climate, the climate becomes your culture. Does that make sense? Got it. Yeah, I, I think that's really well put. This actually reminds me, I, I just finished a book. Have you ever read Secrets of Our Success by no, Joe Henrich? No. It's really quite good. He's an anthropologist at Harvard. Um, he just released a new book on uh, weird societies, white, Western, uh, Western-educated, industrialized, developed countries, the OECD countries, and why they're weird and different. Um, but Secrets of Our Success talks about cultural evolution, essentially, across time and how it, you know, does help, you know, create our bodies and all these different ways that it interacts with people. But he describes two different hierarchy mechanisms in humans. Mm-hmm. There's dominance and prestige hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And so dominance is kind of like you said in the in the bad case of culture where, you know, you just you scream at me like, Will, this podcast, it's horrible. You need to get it together. You know, like uh, you need to change. You need to do this, this and this. Whereas prestige hierarchy is like, well, I'm going to, um, you know, emulate what Ted is doing because Ted's a high status business person. He's been successful. I think it would be a good idea for me to learn from him uh, because he's been down past, you know, I want to go down myself in the future. Uh, And the difference between these two seems to be highlighting like good culture and bad culture. Good culture is I copy you and I listen to what you say because you're a prestigious person and you've done a lot of great things. And the dominance hierarchy is, Oh God, I'm going to lose my job. Uh, he's going to yell at me or physically confront me. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to now ask you a question. I have yeah. bet, I bet that the, one of the reasons why that model was appealing to you is that you have had experiences like that in your life, those kinds of different approaches, which of those do you prefer to be in? Definitely prestige. Right. Cause unless you're the guy at the top of the dominance thing, <laughs> it's not you're just basically good. getting your ass kicked all the time. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. right. So, so there's the thing, right. There's, there's, um, there's, um, there's something in the psychological world called approach and avoidance, right? Interesting. And so if we incline towards approach or avoidance, that changes the relationship, right? And I think you can foster that approach mindset. I think you can develop it in people, introverts, extroverts, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, you can create relationships with people if you are intentional about it. Understanding that people are different, understanding that there's going to be different people's different ways. I mean, I know, I know people who are highly directive people, and I understand that, and I can work with them by accommodating, like, okay, this is the way he is. Okay, that's fine. Let him, gotcha. let him, let him talk for a few minutes, and then we'll come in and pull him back to reality. Right, exactly. But the, I, think, I think you were likely to engage people and help them to achieve by activating those approach circuits as opposed to those avoidance circuits. And you're going to do that with that, uh, the, the, not the dominance approach, but the prestige, the prestige approach or the influence approach. I, I've right. heard it in other systems described as influence. Um, 
and, and a fascinating component of that is, is that intentionality. And so I'm going to go way back now to a few minutes ago when I said two paths, because here's the other path, right? So culture is climate, right? Climate is yeah. just repeated behavior. So behaviors build climate so, and build culture. So the key point there is to be intentional about it, right? Definitely. The key point there is to be intentional about it. Um, I do believe, as, as some people, and I think you've said this as well, Will, that culture is kind of an emergent phenomenon in any given group. It is. But if you're in a group discussion with a bunch of people who don't know each other, you will notice, if you haven't noticed before, that whoever brings the most energy to the group will tend to sort of not dominate the group, but that kind of energy will tend to take over the group. There's right, mirroring yeah. going on. There's reciprocity going on. There's a number of different social things. Hell, if you're walking with a group of people, people will tend to synchronize their walking. Right. Right? I mean, it's all this subconscious crap going on. So if a person comes in and is really negative about this concept or whatever it is you're discussing, that energy will tend to sort of take over the group unless somebody else really pushes back. Right. Uh, so that's about that intentionality. And intentionality in creating culture is key. That's the other path. You have to acknowledge that it's going to happen. It's going to happen by accumulated behavior and accumulated climate, but you have to be intentional about it. And the metaphor I like to use this uh, is, is uh, if, if you've ever gardened, have you ever gardened, Will? I have not really. Okay. But you can imagine. What it's I like. can imagine. You can imagine what it's like. Okay. Um, can you imagine that your garden consists of um, just uh, looking at a patch of ground going, I hope something grows. <laughs> no, probably not, not right? quite not probably quite. Not, probably not, probably not. so at least you imagine you have to like buy seeds right yeah yeah right. okay so you get some seeds or some plants right you get some yeah. plants and you just throw them on the ground and leave them and that's it right <laughs> no you gotta you know, take care no, of them no, no. you gotta like yeah. plant them and stuff and then yeah and then you don't just leave them there you gotta get the weeds out right and you gotta keep yeah. the weeds out and you gotta make sure that the plant the plot you've chosen has decent light and decent water You've got to do some of these things or else the plants won't be productive. And as they grow, you do have to continue. And some plants you have to like, you know, snip off little extra buds and things like that in order to get them to grow right. And certain things you have to harvest right away. And other things you have, you know, there's all these sort of species specific things that you need to take care of. Because if you don't do that, the plants won't be healthy. They won't be productive. Got it. And you won't be productive as a gardener. That makes sense. Right. Got to, so, yeah, I probably am not the first person to use this metaphor. It was probably used, I don't know, maybe 5,000 years ago in Palestine when, <laughs> when someone was writing a book about the early days. But, but, right. but, but the idea that you can just throw stuff out and just expect it to turn into something wonderful is at best wishful thinking and at worst completely delusional. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And you don't have to ride herd on people, right? The plants grow on their own. They will produce what they will produce. You don't buy a tomato plant expecting it to produce peppers necessarily. Although again, this is an imperfect metaphor because of course people can go in lots of different directions. They're not fixed right. entities. I don't believe they're fixed entities that people have the ability to grow and change, but you have to choose the appropriate things that you're going to bring into your garden. And then you have to give them what they need and you have to support them. If it's a tomato plant, maybe you have to have tomato steaks. Right? Right. or a cage to hold them up, to help them be as productive as they could be. Very well put. But you can't just throw stuff on the ground and expect something to come out of it that's going to be good for everybody. It's not going to be good for the plants. It's not going to be good for you. So why would you do that with culture? It doesn't take a lot of work if you understand that simply saying, hey, Will, I really appreciate the work you're doing on this podcast. I know you spend a lot of time on this, setting these up and then recording them and putting up with people like me and then going through and editing them. That's some serious work there. And I know you're doing it because you're trying to foster your own growth and your own edification. At the same time, there's new things coming in that you're sharing with other people and it's going to benefit them. That's a really good thing for you to do. Well, good job. And that, yeah. That's, that's culture. That's culture, that's baby. That's a form of culture. Now, I could also be negative and go down that path, but then exactly. why the hell would I do that? Right. Not a good way to be. No, and it's a counterproductive way to be. It can be very productive in the short term. I have been in work environments, and I'm sure you have, yeah. where people are just trying to get stuff done, and they are not taking care of people, and they're not respecting people because they're focused on the objective and not on long-term sustainability and not on encouraging people to grow and, and be effective. Right. Very, very well put. That was very well put. What's next? We solved that. <laughs> it's done. It's taken care of. Um, so I have one more question on uh, management and learning about that. And, and what's your time look like for today? Just before. Uh, I can go till three. Okay. 
Cool. Or shortly uh, after. I, I, I've got something at 3.30, but I can go till 3 shortly after. Gotcha. Okay. I'll skip that one. Um, I'm moving on to kind of uh, some questions I have about biology. I think you might be able to help me learn a little bit about um, something sure. I'm kind of tangentially interested in. Okay. So, you know, Nixon declared a war on cancer in 1971, and it seems like we still haven't won that. Uh, what went wrong? Because, you know, Kennedy said we're getting the moon and, you know, X amount of time it happened. What went wrong with biology? So, first of all, an engineer approaches a, a discrete problem in a way that uh, is tremendously powerful and tremendously useful, right? Uh, but an engineer has a specific task or set of challenges to address in the physical domain. In the case of biology, it's not just a matter of building a bridge where you can ascertain the strengths of the various materials you could use and then the underlying strata in order to anchor the structure firmly in whatever underlying rock or mud, whatever you've got to deal with and appropriately design it to take the various stresses. In the case of biology, you're actually interrogating nature, right? Right. And, and so there's all these systems there that you actually are approaching from the outside. So you don't have clearly defined working space, if you will, and you don't gotcha. have clearly defined materials. You don't have clearly defined uh, uh, systems or functions. You have to figure all that crap out. There's a book out actually uh, called The Emperor of All Maladies uh, about, about cancer. Um, Interesting. And uh, yeah, it's a fascinating book. And there's a number of other sort of general access books, but that's, that's a especially good one. But the fundamental issue is that cancer is not a single disease. Gotcha. Okay. It's all, it's so a, it's, it's, it's a variety yeah. of issues. It's, it is a, it is a case of uncontrolled growth, inappropriate growth. And um, I can say this because I've, I've lost family members to cancer. Fundamentally what's happening is correct, normal regulatory and sort of cell behavioral pathways are inappropriately activated. Okay. The example I will give you is a fertilized egg develops into a child. That's a single cell, man, a single cell. Right. Even when it's fertilized, it's still just one cell, okay? And it becomes this billion cell colossus. Even at birth, it's an immense expansion from that single individual cell, right? Got it. And that has happened via a progression of highly programmed pathways that have arisen over evolution. You want to see something fascinating. Look at embryology, the human fetus in its development. Technically, this, this, this is one of the fun flashpoints in biology um, <laughs> is, is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which means the development of the individual ontogeny is recapitulating the entire evolution of that species phylogeny. It's not strictly true. It's not yeah. actually evolving in utero. So that's where the controversy comes. Gotcha. But from, from, a, from a gross uh, physical perspective, that appears to be the case. You had gills. Right. Every human alive had gills in utero. You had a tail in wild. utero. What the hell is that about? Well, it's because these programmatic pathways are still there. They don't right. do any harm to the embryo. There's no selective pressure to eliminate those pathways right. from occurring. It's just that by the time you're born, they're gone because some individuals presumably in the past had those and didn't survive and therefore they're selected against. Right. But the pathways are still there. So too, that organism grows from that single fertilized egg into a complete baby. The baby is born. The baby continues to grow. My, my older son is now six foot three. He's taller than I am. I'm six foot two, but he's got me by an yeah. inch. All right. But that happened. I, I remember you'll like this. When he was uh, six months old, I did the math. And from birth to that point in weight and in height, I calculated that if he continued as his current rate of, of growth in a linear state, say, yeah, you're laughing already, right? That's like, what the hell? I thought this would be fun. If he yeah. continued in a linear state of growth, by the time he was 18, he would be 20 some odd feet tall and he would weigh <laughs> over 800 pounds. Right. That's not what happens, right? And yeah. it doesn't happen because those in, in, in amazing and incredible growth characteristics 
are tightly constrained within a genetic program that, okay, the fingers grow like this and the hands grow like this. And in fact, in utero, the fingers grow and then the tissue be between the fingers goes it's away. Necrosis, yeah, necrosis. It just, it's programmed cell death. They just, they yeah. just die, right? They, technically it's not necrosis, it's not apoptosis, but nonetheless, they, 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 they programmatically die to create those five digits, right? And right. all through life, you're going through all this. The brain, my God, the development of the brain, you start with cells at the top that grow and then physically migrate down to create all these conduits of neurons later on. It's astonishingly beautiful and amazing. The problem in cancer is that any of those regulatory pieces can go off. And when it does, boom, you get cancer. Could be retinoblastoma in the back of the eye. Um, I met a wonderful woman years ago who had a retinoblastoma and it was so hard for her. She was in her sixties at that point. It can occur at other ages. Uh, and they had to basically remove her entire eye and the growth behind it. Cause it had actually grown from the back of the eye. That's one kind of tumor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, glial cell tumors in, a, in the brain, uh, those can occur from that particular cell basis. Right. So you have these regulatory pathways that are switched on and off in development. That's what makes us live. That's what makes us human but they are right. inappropriately activated or reactivated or no longer suppressed in the case of cancer. And then it, it replicates whatever it is, tumors from blood cells, leukemia, right? That's another whole set of cancers, right? The various leukemias, right. Uh, lung cancers arrive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're all very different arising from very different, um, very different mechanistic failures. When I was at GSK, I did a very large study where we looked at 250 or 300 cell lines, and I won't even get into all the specifics, but essentially what we were looking for was, could we see a correlation between uh, potential therapeutics and uh, tissue type origin? That is, what are the, what's, the, what's the cancer? What's the mutations in it that are causing the cancer? And then do we see that it's responsive to a given therapeutic? And therefore we could say, for example, you know, this set of, of, of uh, lines coming from this particular tissue has this kind of mutational issue and therefore you can treat them with this kind of thing. It didn't, it didn't work, okay? Because even within one tissue, you can have multiple pathways for dysfunction and any one of those pathways dysfunction can lead to, to tumors. What most people don't understand is there's an entire arm of the immune system that goes out, natural killer cells that go out and actually monitor, monitor for, for, for abnormal cell growth. And most of the time they succeed. And there, there are internal processes in these cells that also are sort of on the lookout for things going off track. And most of the time they succeed. So what we see manifesting at, phenotypically as a disease state is when the internal cellular and the external immune, internal to the body, but external to the tissue involved, immune system surveillance fail. And you essentially get these breakout, uh, breakouts of, of, of tumor. Uh, and then then you've got full-blown cancer, right? And even gotcha. within that, there are some cancers that are lethal right away. There are other cancers that can linger for years and people can live with. Like some cancers, like certain varieties of prostate cancer, they don't even know if they should treat it in some cases. They right. say you could do watchful waiting, right? Yeah. And people can live with it for decades and, and manage the symptoms and so forth and, and be relatively fine. Whereas gotcha. other tumors you have to treat right away or else the patient will die very quickly. That makes sense. So I, so I guess Nixon's real error then was a critical thinking error. It's one of like one of the ones we talked about earlier with uh, the early streaming service in the early you know nineties. It's that the you know cancer is not monolithic and it's actually all these different connect connected conditions. Instead of like going to the moon is one discrete thing. This is like what you're describing thousands of different things. I, I don't mean to trivialize this. And again, I want to emphasize to anyone who's listening and, and has had cancer in their family. I have lost very close family members to cancer. I lost my dad to cancer um, uh, and others. But um, fundamentally, it's a little like saying everything that's frozen is ice cream. Right. It's not right. It's not. There's lots of all ice creams are frozen, but not yeah. all frozen things are ice cream. Right. And, exactly. and again, I don't mean to trivialize it, but I'm simply using that as an illustration. There are multiple ways of getting cancer from multiple molecular mechanisms. Uh, and uh, there's not one simple solution to it. And the beauty of the research done over the last decades is that we understand that now we're getting much, much better. Um, I have a relative who developed breast cancer um, at a relatively young age, and it's it's a triple positive breast cancer, which is great. They were able to figure it out. They were able to diagnose it. They know exactly what treatment to put, put her on. She's on it. She's doing well. She's seeing some metastasis that's as expected to a particular tissue type. And they expect that and they can treat that too. And so she's having years and years of good quality of life 
uh, with you know occasional treatment uh, windows uh, for something that would have been fatal 40 years ago. Right. That's great. It's so progress, right? It's it's right. limited progress, but it's progress. There's progress. Very interesting. So we're coming up on the top of the hour. And so this last section, it's quick. It's called overrated or underrated. So I'll throw out a, a noun and you'll just give me a, um, a quick sentence on, is it overrated? Is it underrated? Is it correctly rated? And, and why? Uh, that sound good? Over, under. Let's go. All right. So monoclonal antibodies. It depends. It depends. <laughs> so they're tremendously powerful and specific. But uh, they're not going to do everything you want to do. As large antibodies are large proteins, right? They're not going to. Yeah. They're not going to be without some potential side effects because they are large. They could potentially be immunogenic if they're humanized. That reduces that likelihood. Uh, and some individuals, some patients will uh, will not deal well with with monoclonal antibody treatment. However, having and particularly in the Carolinas, interesting in Carolinas and, the, and Tennessee. You see the, the, the biggest problems with administering that. I think it has to do with all the pollen we get in the spring, but I'm not sure. Really? <laughs> I, don't know about, I don't know about the pollen thing, but it is absolutely true that the Carolinas and Tennessee actually has, the, has, has some of the highest issues with uh, oh, antibody wow. therapeutics. But in principle, monoclonal antibodies are incredibly precise, incredibly potent, uh, and they can do some things that are really, really uh, amazing. They're, they're, they're astonishingly effective. Uh, so it depends. Very cool. Organizational change. Overrated, underrated? Tremendously underrated because it's usually done really badly. Gotcha. Okay. So I've seen figures that 70% of organizational change fail. Oh, wow. And I've also seen a study by KPMG about two years ago that said that 80% of mergers do not return value to stakeholders. Wow. And I think that's all about shifting people's behaviors that are ingrained and they are part of everyday experience. They have become baked in to how everybody does everything and shifting that is really, really hard. And so you got to start early. You got to start deliberately and you got to follow through. You got to have that high level championship that I talked about at the beginning of this chat. And you also have to have that low level buy-in and acceptance and working towards that common goal. Uh, so organizational change is hugely underrated because what it can do is spectacular and what happens is usually it's not done well. Gotcha. Great. Uh, content marketing. Content marketing. Well, I can go back to Netflix. I can, I can take you to Disney plus. Right. Uh, I can take you to all kinds of stuff. Uh, content marketing is key because, uh, was it, I'm trying to think it was somebody at, was it Lawrence Tish who said that it's CBS who said that content is king? Um, That's right. You know, Netflix knows they need to invest billions of dollars and have in in all kinds of stuff. Some of which is direct and doesn't go anywhere, and some of which, like Roma, wins a freaking Academy Award. Right. right? They they invest in all this stuff because they don't know Tiger King. Tiger yeah, no. King, oh right? God. I mean, good Lord, right? But, you know, the cost for production of that was probably next to nothing, right? They yeah. just found some some crazy people to film them, right? <laughs> They'll just turn right. on the camera. Right. It's just, what the hell? You know, throw them red meat or whatever. But, but literally, content marketing is key because what you are offering is is why people will come to you. That's great. One more. So machine learning, overrated, underrated? I want to make like a robotic voice imitation. So it is <laughs> underrated. Um, sound like a Dalek. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, um, I think right now machine learning is underrated. Uh, there's a great book out there. I'd recommend to anybody called um, AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee, uh, who was former head of, I want to say Google in China. I could be wrong. It could be Microsoft. But anyway, Kai-Fu Lee, AI Superpowers, fantastic story. Um, machine learning and AI is going to be an immensely powerful force in the coming century. And whether that's going to be good or bad or more likely a mixed bag is yet to be seen. Um, uh, give you an example of how the power of AI learning that is completely trivial and stupid. I occasionally check out YouTube at night when I'm relaxing and um, I watched various odds and ends. And for some reason I was on a Saturday night live kick. So I was watching a fair amount of old, old SNL. Uh, and it's suddenly out of nowhere, it offered me the chance to see a second city TV routine. 
And I don't know if you know Second City TV. Do you know SCTV? I don't. So they were a, an improv group uh, in the 70s and 80s. And some of their people went on to, among other things, Saturday Night Live. So John Candy came out of there. Um, uh, wow. Gosh, uh, O'Hara, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis. Um, okay. um, all these all these tremendously talented people came through there. Uh, Rick Moranis. I mean, all these people came through. So it's based in Chicago. That's why it's called Second City. Anyways, gotcha. so I'm sitting there on my, my, you know, just browsing through YouTube and I'm watching this clip or whatever. And all of a sudden it's offering me the chance to see this Second City TV routine that I've, I don't know if I've ever seen that before. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I've never used YouTube to look at Second City videos. <laughs> but they knew the probability of somebody watching like 70s SNL, 80s SNL, there was a reasonably good Venn diagram overlap, right? With yeah. someone who might enjoy Second City and might understand its sort of cultural significance. And I'm thinking, my God, and that was a really simple algorithm. A really yeah. simple one. People who like Second Saturday Night Live might like the following things. Category, show, 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 show. And then right. the algorithm just spits up one of those shows and another one of those shows and another one of those shows. And eventually you're going to click on one. And when it clicks on one, now it's got two points, right? It's like, it's like triangulating yep. when you're navigating, right? So now it's got two data points on you. It knows you like SNL. It knows you like Second City. Okay, what else might it offer you? Well, maybe it'll offer you uh, some other improv group or maybe it'll offer you some, some uh, you know, uh, stand-up comedy or whatever. And it will start. Next thing you know, it knows that you secretly like Dave Chappelle. Yep. <laughs> right? And, and, you, and at no point did anyone ask you, tell us about your preferences. At no point did they make you consciously give them information. You gave it Just all happened. the way. So that's where I think the power of AI is happening. The machine learning is going to take information from us without our even knowing we're giving it. And maybe that's a good thing and maybe that's a bad thing. But I think it's, it's hugely underrated. I don't think people understand how it's going to affect us. You already see it in politics where people get into these echo chambers where right. because you like Fox News, they give you Breitbart. And because you like Breitbart and Fox News, they give you something else along those same lines. Or if you like MSNBC, I'm not picking on one group. I'm saying if you like MSNBC, well, now they're going to give you Daily Cost and they're, right. or, or whatever, or Rachel Maddow. Or what. So you're going to start to be, to be seeing more and more and more of the same stuff. And after a while, you don't even know that there are other ways to look at the world around you. And you right. don't even realize your perspective is constrained by your existing preferences. That's dangerous because that's not truth. That's not reality. That's right. That's right. It's Super just a powerful. slice of it or a perspective. Yeah. So anyways, another whole, another whole space to go into, but yeah, that's the short answer. Great. Well, Ted, thank you very much. This has been super interesting. I, thought, I think this has been a great conversation. We'll bring a lot of value to a lot of people. Um, so. where, can, where can people find you? So uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, Ted Benson. Um, I think I'm the only Ted Benson out there, but Corralling nice. Chaos. I am a biotech and management consultant. Uh, Corralling Chaos is our website online. Two R's, two L's. Great. It's a really interesting name. We're not trying to crush chaos or control it. We're just trying to corral it because we oh. want that energy. And so it's, it's such an unusual name that we don't need to deal with SEO. It's awesome. It's nice. <laughs> um, online, we're on Twitter as well. Um, and uh, we have some great materials available for free on our website. We have white papers and videos and all kinds of fun stuff. We're posting regularly on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach out and connect. Uh, and again, happy to chat with anybody about whatever challenges they're having in their, in their workspace. Awesome. Thanks, Ted. We'll put those links in the description. Absolutely. Again, so just to give you the, 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 the concise summary, so that people understand what Corral and Chaos is about. We are a catalyst for authentic leadership and high-performing teams. And that's what we, we endeavor to, to, to create or to foster with our clients. And our clients have been very happy with us. And I've been really happy with this chance to chat with you, Will. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed this. It's been a ton of fun. I've learned a lot. Thank you, Ted. Absolutely, Will. Take care.